So I'm about to make one of my statements. I've been making a lot of my, my statements lately because I love Philippians so much, but I'm about to make a very JT statement. And, okay, so you ready for it? I think today we are going to get right to the heart of our hope, of our strength, of our victory. I, mean, I, I believe we're going to get right to the heart of our faith today. And maybe that's a little bit of an overstatement. Maybe it's not an overstatement, but either way, uh, I, I want you to know that I'm really encouraged about what we're going to talk about today because I think it's just that important. I, I think it's just that important. And so if you don't know, we've been going through a sermon series on Philippians. We'll call it Divine Humility. You would see a pretty little thing that Sarah made for us if this was working today, right? But we're calling it Divine Humility. We've been walking through the book of Philippians. But the last four weeks, we've really been walking verses through just two Chapter 2, 1 through 11, because this, uh, maybe this isn't going to be the heart of our faith today, even though I think it is. It's definitely the heart of the letter of Philippians. And I, and I believe, like I said before, not only is it the heart of Philippians, but I think it's going to get right to the heart of our faith today. And so if you haven't been with us, what we've been walking through, one, is we call it the book of Philippians, but just know that's really a letter of Philippians because it was written by the Apostle Paul, who was in jail in Rome, who's writing to a church in the city of Philippi, which is in Greece. It's a Roman colony, a church that he started. And now he's in jail for his faith, and he's writing back to encourage this church that he loves so much. So it's kind of this amazing thing. From Paul, Paul from jail, who is suffering, is writing to them so he can encourage them in their joy in Jesus Christ. And so what we've been looking at, and like I said, the last five weeks in verses 1 through 11, but we've really um, made it to about verse 8. But the reason we're talking about verses 5 through 11 and where we've been in the last couple of weeks is most scholars, most theologians degree, agree that verses 5 through 11 is a hymn. It was a hymn sung by the early church, like the earliest of church. And this was an important hymn because, like I said, it goes right to the heart of what we believe. So sometimes we forget, but the early church, churches like the church in the book of Philippians, the church in Philippi and Ephesus and Colossae and all the other places, they were under a ton of persecution. Remember, this was a very new faith in Jesus Christ, right? We can say it wasn't new because it came through the Jews, right? It's been around a long time, but like it's looked at as a new faith and they were under a ton of persecution. They suffered a, bun a bunch. And what we hear in the New Testament is there's constantly false teachers trying to lead them astray, to lie to them about who Jesus really is. And so this hymn we can see it. It helped them. It dearly helped them to hold on to the truth of who Jesus Christ is when there was a whole world telling them that he really wasn't who they believe he is. And so this is a really important hymn to the church 2,000 years ago. But listen, church, it's, it's still what we need to hear today. It's still what we need to hear today. So what we're going to do is we're going to start in verse 9. And verse 9 starts with the word, therefore. It starts with the word therefore, and I say this all the time, I know you're sick of it, but um, whenever you see a therefore, you got to see what it's there for. Because when they say therefore, it means, hey, what came before, because of what I told you before, therefore, this matters so much. And so you can't really understand what's going on in, ver in verses 9 through 11 without what, what, what came before. And so here's what we're going to do. We'll just kind of recap 1 through 8 as we go. We're going to go back to 1 through 8, and then as we go... I'll kind of recap verses 1 through 8 if you haven't been with us, and then we'll jump into verse 9, because that therefore really refers to verses 1 through 8, maybe 3 or 4 through 8 in particular. And my hope and my prayer today, church, is that by the end of this, you will leave today more fully rooted in the hope and in the victory and in the, just the beauty we find in the glory of God that is displayed through the faithfulness 
in the majesty of Jesus Christ. That's what we want today. So go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Let me see if I can find it in my wife's Bible here. Bam, got it. Okay, and so before we jump into the first two verses, if you haven't been with us, Paul starts off with these if questions, like if statements, if there's any encouragement in Christ. And just so you know, that might seem confusing. These are rhetorical questions. Paul's not actually asking if they've ever experienced encouragement in Christ. He's reminding them that they have. He's been with them when they experienced encouragement in Christ. He's been with them when they've experienced encouragement with each other and with him. So this, before Paul says some pretty poignant, some really important, some really weighty things, he wants to remind them of who they are in Jesus and what God has already done. So with that, let's start in chapter 2, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, right? Having your minds focused on the same thing, having the same love, that's the love that is found in Jesus Christ and the love that we're supposed to show to each other, being in full accord. And if you remember, the Greek for being in full accord could also be translated as be of one soul, be of one soul and of one mind. So again, what that's really saying is heart, soul, and mind be united in Jesus Christ. Have your minds pointed at the same thing because there's so many things in the church that we can, we can get off on the details, we can get off on all the secondary things, but if we have our minds focused on Jesus, who he was, how he loved, what he did, we can stay united through the things that try to divide us because, listen, the enemy is going to constantly try to divide us. Listen, we've seen that even in our church in the last four or five weeks going through this series, like things just come up and you're like, well, how did this thing come up? It's because the enemy's attacking us when we go, through pay, we, go through, we go through passages like this because this truth is just so important. United, heart, soul, and mind. Verse three, so this is kind of telling us how that plays out in the church. And the Philippian church was a healthy church but also had some division. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Yours might say rivalry. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. You want to know humility it is? You, you want to know what humility is? It's that. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's an amazing statement, church. Because Jesus is about to leave us an amazing example with the rest of this passage. And it's going to, it is, he is saying, have this mind, follow the example of Christ. But he's also saying, you have this mind in you, that Jesus Christ is in us through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we can love and we can be humble and we can do the things that Christ did in this way. We can have the humility, the divine humility of Jesus Christ because he's in us. Like this is, this is possible. Verse five again, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You can think of the form of God because saying that Jesus is God, but the form of God as the glory of God. As Hebrews says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And so Jesus set aside some of his glory. He laid down some of his glory as the ruler in heaven and earth to come down to become a man. And it says, do not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That could, be some, that could also be translated, he didn't take advantage of. Jesus didn't hold on to all of his power and all of his authority and all of his glory and say, no, this is mine. No, he let some of that, he set some of that aside so that he could come down and be with us. And what did that look like? When he didn't grasp onto it, but set it aside so he could come, it says, verse seven, but emptying himself by taking the form of a servant. That word servant can also be translated as slave. Being born 
in the likeness of men. Jesus left his glory, set aside some of that glory and his authority and his power so that he could become not a slave, but like a slave. Take the form of a slave, the form of a man. He took the form of someone who has no rights. He took the form of someone who has no authority. He took the form of someone who couldn't stop those in power, which he could have stopped everything that happened, but he emptied himself so that he could serve all of mankind. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Remember, humbling is counting more others as significant than yourself. The God of the universe counted us as more significant than himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, but not just death, even death on a cross. So that's where we left off last week about how Christ went from glory to slavery. And that through that willing humility, he was brought about as low as a human could go because the cross was the symbol for the Roman Empire of humiliation. It was the symbol of shame. It was the symbol of destruction and of powerlessness. So what's going to happen is we're going to start in verse 9 today. And in verse 9, what we're going to see in the hymn, what we're going to see is what some people call the great reversal. The great reversal. That through Jesus' great humility and his perfect obedience to the Father, that he's going to go from the lowest place possible to the highest place possible. And that's what we're going to see today. So let's look at verse 9. Philippians 2, verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That means Satan, that means hell, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It's one of my favorite things in Scripture. I just love the way it sounds. I love the way it feels. I love the way it reads. It's a hymn, right? I just feel the pattern of it. Um, as, as one commentator said, it's like, it's like the, a drumbeat declaring who Jesus Christ is as you go through it. You just kind of feel it as you go. I love it. I encourage you to read that out loud to yourself sometimes and just feel um, how amazing that truth in that passage really is. And so what we, if you weren't here last week, what we, really, what we did for a while is, is we talked about how through Adam, through Adam and Eve, we are now under, all under the curse of sin, right? We're all under the curse of sin. We feel it inside of us, right? When we do the things that we don't want to do, like that, that, that curse still exists in our world, but through the humility of Christ, the power of the curse, even though we might give into it, even though we might feel it at times, the power of the curse has now been broken. And so that's really the transition from verse 8 to 9, and it's amazing because it just speaks so succinctly to what Christ has accomplished for all of mankind, for all of us, right? Just very quickly tells us what, he, what happened. The truth is, Jesus, as Scripture says, that Jesus became a curse for us. The cross was a curse. It represented what happened in, in the garden with Adam and Eve as, as the curse came because of sin. And Jesus became sin on the cross for us. He became the curse on the cross for us. And because of that, he was able to break the power of that curse. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. That's what this passage says. He was the perfect man perfect obedience, deserved nothing but glory, but he became a curse, and so it broke the power of it because he had no curse. He had no sin in him. This word exalted, it says the God the Father exalted him. In the Greek, this, this word for exalted really means to be exalted as highly as possible. One commentator I read said that the, the word really could be translated as hyper-exalted, 
which that doesn't flow nearly as well, right? But that's what it means. As, as high as you could possibly lift, lift it. So Jesus went as low as he could go in obedience to the Father. So the Father lifted him up as high as he could possibly go. Now, when we read this, we have to be a little bit careful. Not really careful, but a little bit careful. Because it, it could be viewed through the, long, the wrong lens. We could view it kind of through a human lens and not a God lens. And what I mean by that is it looks like the Father rewarded Jesus for his perfect obedience, right? And the truth is, it, it is what the Father did. But maybe not in the way that we would normally see it. Because we might normally see it like it says that, that Jesus was basically rewarded for his perfect obedience. It was, it was almost like, well, God the Father was waiting to see what Jesus would do in his perfect obedience and, and waiting. And when he finally did it, when Jesus finally came through and died for us on the cross, when the Father was like, yes, and rewarded him for that. But that's not what happened. Do you think the Father ever doubted whether Jesus was going to go through it? Do you think Jesus ever truly wondered if he was going to go through it? Right? As a man, he had his moment when he's like, is there another way? But Jesus said, not my will, your will, Father. Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do. So this wasn't a reward in that way for, for doing that. No, this reward was vindication. Jesus was humiliated as low as he could go. That's why other places in Scripture say that, that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. They just can't understand a holy and righteous God that would die on a cross. Because we don't, we don't see it 2,000 years later. But at that time, again, I'm going to say it over and over. The, the cross was a curse. It was shame. It was humiliation and death and destruction. It was horrible, right? It's hard for us to see that. And for someone to say, wait, your God became a curse on that tree, on that cross? And you're saying I should worship him? And so what, this, what Jesus did in his perfect obedience to the Father, dying on the cross when he was resurrected and lift, his name lifted above every other name, this was, this was the Father bringing vindication and exaltation to Jesus Christ to declare who he actually is. That's why we call this the great, the great reversal. From humiliation to exaltation and glorification. Man, if you're new to this Christian thing, that's a lot of Christian words, isn't it? exaltation as high as you can go, the glory of God, the weight of God, who God is, like this declares who God is, his radiance, his weight, who he is. Now, it's not just that Christ was exalted, lifted up higher than all others, but that he was given the name that is above every name. If you're uh, not as new to this whole scripture thing, you probably know that in the Old Testament in particular, people's names carried a whole lot of weight, right? People's names always had meaning, and it, it somehow in Scripture, those, those meanings seem to carry out in their life, right? And it's no different with God. It's actually a reflection of who God is. And, and in God's case, in particular, his name was a declaration of who he is. And when I, when I say that, what I mean is, do you remember what um, happened with Moses when he's at the burning bush and he asks God what his name was, God's response is, I am who I am. I mean, that is like, I was going to say the word boss. Am I in 1991? Right? But it's like the most boss thing ever. That's ridiculous. It is just like one of the most awesome things ever. Who are you? I am. Oh my gosh. That, like, I am everything. I am the alpha. I am the mega. I am everything. I am in everything. I create everything. I am. I can't say that with enough weight. I am, right? He just is. That's who God is. I love his name. His name carries weight. His weight carries the presence of who God is. God said to Moses in Exodus 33, when Moses asked to see God, 
And Moses couldn't really see God. He just kind of saw God's glory pass him. And God said this to Moses in Exodus 33, 19, after Moses' request to see him. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And so when, the, when God passed by him, like all of creation declared who God is, declared his name to Moses, that he's patient and gracious and full of steadfast love. It like declared to him. So that's what we're really talking about when we hear the name above every name. It's not just like some common. This is God saying this about who Jesus Christ really is. So in the same way, God is saying that Christ, that, that as he lifted him up and he, he gave him the name that above, is above every name, it is a declaration, right? It's a declaration. It's not just saying something. So, so listen, I think you know this. There is only one name that is above every name, right? And those reading this would know that there's only one name that is above every name. And so when Paul, when the Holy Spirit, when God is declaring through Paul that Jesus has the name above every name, it is absolutely, for those who especially know the Old Testament, is absolutely a declaration that Jesus is God. Not that he has a name lifted high, but that he is God. That he is God. In the... In the Jewish culture, they wouldn't even use the name of God. The name Yahweh, they wouldn't say it. They wouldn't even write it. When they translated from Hebrew to Greek originally, they translated every time it said Yahweh, they just ended up translating it to the word Lord. You know, where we get the, the name Lord, where we get the word Lord, is really because it was a replacement for the name Yahweh. Because they didn't want to write Lord. And so this absolutely was a declaration of who Jesus Christ is that, as we'll see in a second, that he is not just some guy, but that Jesus is God. And so no wonder that this was an early hymn that the early church sang. Because as I said before, there were so many false teachers. There was so, so much persecution for those that believed. And so every time they sang this hymn, it reminded them that Jesus wasn't just a good man which a lot of people were telling them that. You might even hear that today. I had a conversation with an atheist that I talked about last week. Talked about how Jesus seems pretty cool in the way he approach, approaches everything. I don't get a lot of disagreement with that ever. Like if everybody lived the way Jesus did, wouldn't the world be a better place? Well, yeah. I mean, how can you disagree with that? How can you disagree? But, but this hymn declared to them that Jesus wasn't just a good man, that, that Jesus wasn't, and he was a good man, but that's not that's not the point, that, that Jesus wasn't just a great prophet. People, Muslims still say that to this day, right? Some Jewish sects will say that Jesus, yeah, Jesus was a great prophet. No, 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 he, he, was, he was a good prophet. He was the prophet. Or that, as some false teachers will say, that Jesus isn't really God. He's just like, kind of like one of the sons of God, and he represented God on this planet. And he was just fully man, but he, he represented God in a different way. Like, listen, there's all kinds of things I could keep going that try to pull people away from who Jesus really is. And this hymn was declaring to them clearly, succinctly, that they could sing over and over, just like we sing songs over and over, that Jesus is God. And we need to be reminded of that, just like they need to be reminded of that. That he is the only eternally begotten son of God and the one to be exalted above all others. This idea is made even more concrete in verse 10 through 11. So let's read 10 through 11 one more time. Philippians 2 verses 1 through 11 one more time. I'll just start in verse 9. Therefore, because of verses 5 through here, 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Church, this moment in verses 10 through 11 right here, this is truly the great reversal. This is what they're referring to as Jesus humbled himself and, and bowed in humility to, he, listen, he bowed in humility to all mankind so that he might lift up all mankind. Now the Father has lifted up Christ so that at his name, every person in mankind will be humbled before him, before his awesome power as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Christ was humbled for mankind so that he might lift us up and in lifting us up, how does he lift us up? He humbles us before him so that we might worship because he's what we actually need. Now we humble, humbly give ourselves to him, to the rule and authority of Jesus Christ. This is, if you didn't catch this, obviously another powerful declaration of who Jesus Christ is. So it's a modified version of what God said through the prophet Isaiah in the book of Isaiah, and in, but in Isaiah, written in the Old Testament, Isaiah 45, 23, since you don't have it behind you, Isaiah 45, 23, God said this through the prophet Isaiah, to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, every tongue shall swear allegiance. I was going to read Philippians 2. It says this, to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. And so Philippians 2 is just a modified version of that. But, but now it's still saying that every knee shall bow to God instead of saying every tongue shall confess, that every tongue shall swear allegiance. But how do we swear allegiance to God? We know the way that we all swear allegiance to God, don't we? Through Jesus Christ, through belief in Jesus Christ, we are saved, we are redeemed, we are brought into the family of God. We become a part of who he is by humbling ourselves before God and saying, I can't save myself, I need to be saved, and Jesus Christ is the way. He is how we show our ultimate allegiance to God and give him our life. And so God in the Old Testament said, every knee shall bow. What they didn't know when Isaiah said that 700 years before Christ is that Christ is the person, is the God-man, is God that they shall bow down to and be committed to God through. If you want, um, I'm going to read this to you, but you can turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, just go left in your, your Bibles, just a couple pages if you're in Ephesians. And no, only what reason I want to read this is because it just sums up, sums this up in another just beautiful passage that Paul wrote. Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this one to the church in Ephesus, which wasn't that far away from Philippi, another church that he started. And Paul says this in Ephesians 1, 19 through 23. Ephesians 1, 19 through 23, he says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, meaning right now, but the age to come when Jesus returns and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Another great passage. I just love the way that says, it just declares who Jesus Christ is. Now, he says that it's, it's almost giving the impression that now this is what, who Jesus Christ is, that he wasn't before. But that's not the case, is it? Because in John 1, right? John, the, the book that we went through, in John chapter 1, it states clearly that, that everything from the beginning was made for Christ, was made through Christ, and was made in Christ. Jesus was always the ruler over all creation. But, but now that God 
now that God had, God's son has truly been revealed, now that, that Christ that was whispered about all through the Old Testament, the son that was whispered about all, all through God's promises in the Old Testament, now that his divinity has been, been unveiled, that, that the divinity that was, that was veiled by humiliation has now been unveiled, now God is really declaring to the world who Jesus Christ really is. Again, there was whispers about this king all through the Old Testament, wasn't there? A son, a king, a suffering servant, a ruler, someone with authority that would save us all. But they didn't know who Jesus was. And so it's not like Jesus was transformed after the cross. No, Jesus was unveiled after the cross as he was given exaltation in the name that was above every name. Jesus unveiled through humiliation and redemption to the world. It's a beautiful thing. This is how God saved us and made him the true ruler over all creation, and not just the creation that we think of, but even heaven and earth and under the earth over Satan and all his demons. All this comes together with what equates to the true name of Christ. What I mean by that is, yes, we worship Jesus' name. We talk about Jesus every week. We sing about Jesus every week. We exalt the name, literally, of Jesus every week, and we lift it high. But in but verse 11 and the name we see in verse 11 really declares the truth, and we pointed to it a minute ago. That every tongue in heaven and earth and under the earth, meaning hell, will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. Church, this is the name that is reserved for God and God alone. This is the name that was given to replace the name of Yahweh to declare who Jesus is. And maybe this line isn't as impactful for those of us that grew up knowing that Jesus Christ is Lord, but for a new church, again, under heavy persecution and constant false teaching that was trying to lie to them about who Jesus Christ really is, this was and always will be the truth that they needed to hold on to so desperately. That Jesus wasn't some guy. He didn't just have some name. That Jesus Christ is Lord, and there is only one Lord. This is a truth most of us don't think about, but I think it's a, a truth that we're going to have to hold on to tighter and tighter as our culture and our country and our world continues to change more and more and more and care about this less and less. More lies are going to seep in. More culture is going to lie to us. We're going to be more influenced. So I think we need this hymn just as much as they did right now to remember that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I'll say finally, there's one more truth I think we need to hold on to in this passage. And it might be the most important of them all. I mean, these are all important, but this might be the most important of all. Is that Yes, Jesus right now has conquered the power of sin and death. You are no longer a slave to sin. It no longer rules over you. Listen, I, I think I've said this before, but you need to hear this. Read, read Romans 7 into Romans 8 this week. You still feel like sin is the thing that you want, but you're trying to be holy. Wrong. It's not who you are. You need to remember who you are. The thing in the deepest parts of you, because Christ is in you, because the Holy Spirit is in you, is holiness. It's just buried under all of your past, all of the weight, and it's buried under the curse. But who you really are is a follower of Jesus Christ. That's why we spent so much time at the beginning of the series talking about what a saint is. Because you don't feel like a saint. You don't feel holy and blameless. You don't feel like this is who you are, but it is who you are. We don't walk by the flesh. We walk by the Spirit, and we are people of the Spirit. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit, and you will walk in the ways of the Spirit. This is who we are. This is what we need to hold on to. You're no longer a slave. And Jesus has already accomplished that. He's already undone the power of the curse and set us free. Praise God for that. Praise God. Jesus is already the King of kings and the Lord of lords, ruling over all creation. But, I hate that there's a but there, but isn't there a but there? But, 
has every tongue in heaven and on earth and under the earth confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord yet? Has Jesus made every enemy, not just conquered their power, but has he actually made every enemy a defeated foe and a footstool under his feet yet? The answer is no, church. Ephesians 1 talked about it, that Jesus is at work in this age, but he's also got work to do for the next age, meaning the day when our enemy is truly defeated once and for all, namely that is sin and death through the power of Satan once and for all when it's over and the power of the curse is undone. Now, this is a phrase you probably heard me use before, but we call this, a lot of people call this already, not yet. Jesus has already defeated the power of Satan and, he, and Jesus is already sitting on his throne, ruling and reigning, but he hasn't yet completely and fully completed the job of undoing the curse. But that day is coming. Jesus, listen, is the fulfillment of every one of God's promises. And so many of those promises have been fulfilled. And praise God, so many of those promises have already been fulfilled. Maybe even most of them. We praise God right now for his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and all of those things that come through salvation in Jesus Christ. But listen, one day those things won't even be needed. Do you ever think about that? I can't wait for that day when I won't need grace anymore. I'll still be astounded by God's grace, but I won't need it. I'll still be astounded by God's mercy for all of eternity, but I won't need it. I'll be astounded about God, what God forgave through his son, Jesus Christ, but I won't need it. Because Jesus will have finally washed away our enemy and every bit of the filth and the taint that comes with a curse. And I can't wait for it. You like me, some days I'm just exhausted. I believe that I am a man of the Spirit and praise God for that, but some days I am just exhausted by the curse and I'm ready. Man, I had this conversation this week. Someone's like, man, I just wish Jesus Christ would return. And I'm like, me too. Yet, man, I still know there's people, there's people that don't know Jesus. At the time of grace, not only do I not want to have to worry about grace anymore and need grace anymore, but there's people that will never really get it. The time of grace is going to end. Like Jesus is going to return as a judge and he's going to separate though, the, she the sheep from the goats, right? He's going to separate those that believe and those that don't. And the time of grace will end. This is why we have to preach. This is why we have to share the gospel. We don't, we don't live in that tension every day, do we, church? I wish that we did. I wish that I did. But that day is going to end. As much as I want Jesus Christ to return to make all things new. And, and church, as the scripture says, time is short. We don't know. Jesus can come tomorrow. But when that comes, that time's over. And so that family member, that friend, that per per person at your favorite restaurant that you care about but doesn't know Jesus, their time's going to end. Maybe we should be a little bit more passionate about, about their salvation. So as we move towards the close, don't get too excited. We're not, i got a couple pages left, right? But as we move towards the close, I want us to be reminded of, of one thing so we'll, we'll feel the truth of this. I want us to be reminded of what was lost. What was lost in that garden? Genesis 2, 8 through 10. Genesis 2, 8 through 10 says this. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Maybe that, this is just going to sound silly to you, but 
Isn't it amazing even from the very beginning that God created things like trees, not just to give us oxygen or fruit, but just so that we'd enjoy them? He created it so that it would bring us pleasure and would be pleasant just to sit and look at. Sometimes I'm a sucker for trees. I don't know why. I don't know if you're like that. But I'll sit on my back porch and just watch the trees. My big trees in my backyard just sway back and forth. And honestly, it makes me worship God. I'm just like, just some plant that grew out of the ground, yet I'm in awe of it. It's so weird that I'm in awe of a tree, but like that's how God built us, to be in awe of his creation and get pleasure from it. And that's how God created from the beginning. The garden was there to take care of them, but just so that they can enjoy it, right? And, and get to eat from it. That's just amazing. I'm going to keep going. The tree of life was there. Remember that name. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which had the fruit that they took and broke everything. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. That's where we're going to stop in Genesis. But listen, God gave us this beautiful, perfect place to, to, dwell, to dwell with him. That's what the Garden of Eden was, a place where in that we had all that we needed. This is what was lost. We had all that was needed. Listen, there was a river in the Garden of Eden that breathed life in, 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 into that garden. And God gave us all of that to rule over as his image bearers. Right? The garden was there so that we might have dominion over that garden and rule over it as his image bearers. But we know what happened if you were here and if you've heard the story before. Through a tree, through the, knowledge of good, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, through a tree, and through our sin and our desire to have what was never meant from us, the, that beauty, that perfection, listen, that wholeness that was in the garden with God was shattered. And other than the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, it's the most tragic thing that's ever happened. It's the most tragic thing that's ever happened because out of that fall, out of fruit from that tree that was eaten, that brought sin into the world, every hard thing, every evil thing, every painful thing, every tear, all the suffering because, because of that fall, has happened to us now. But, but church, the greatest promise of Scripture, right, the greatest promise of Scripture, the greatest promise of our faith is not forgiveness of sin. Praise God for forgiveness of sin. But listen, the greatest promise is that Jesus is going to return and he's going to undo all that. Like Jesus is going to return and he's going to make all things new. Revelation tells us that after Jesus returns and defeats Satan and sin and death and all of those things, once and for all, forever and ever, Revelation 21 tells us that there won't be suffering anymore. There won't be evil anymore. There won't be tears anymore. There won't be pain anymore. All that we'll have forever is good things, for all of the former things will have passed away. Listen, he's not going to just heal it. He's going to undo it. It's going to be like it never happened. All that pain that you carry with you, God is going to use that to draw you into his glory. But in heaven, we won't feel the pain anymore. It'll all be like, look how it brought glory to God. Look what God was doing. I couldn't see it, but look what God was doing. We'll celebrate even the pain because it won't feel like pain anymore. It'll feel like glory. As we rule and reign with Jesus Christ, it'll have passed away. It'll be undone. But listen, it's not just that. It's God restoring and even magnifying what was lost in the garden so long ago. Do you ever think about it that way? It's, just, it's him restoring. But this time it won't be a garden. It'll be a city. It'll be a city of God. And if you've ever read through Revelation, it's going to be a massive city that we can't even comprehend. But it's going to be a city of God. A, a, a city that the Garden of Eden will always be a pale reflection of. 
In this city, God's people will come and they'll be in his presence forever. And I don't want you to think of a city like Manhattan. Because I'm going to read a passage. In this city, there's going to be a river. And there's going to be trees. I think it's highly likely that it's going to basically be exactly like an elven city in Lord of the Rings. Maybe that's my bias. But I don't know what the city's going to look like exactly. But I think it's going to be something more like that than a concrete jungle, right? But what I do know for sure is that God is going to be there with his people. And we're going to be in his presence, and it's going to be all we'll ever need. Revelation 22. If you want to, you can flip there. It's in the very very last chapter of the Bible. Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5, describes this city and this time like this. And remember, this was an angel revealing the truth to John as he wrote it. He just wrote down what he saw. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, that's Jesus, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life. You remember that name? That was in the garden at the very beginning. The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, right? That word's important. There's no more cursed. It's, it's been undone. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. I don't know what that means. Don't ask. And the night will be no more. They will, I love this so much. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign. Not listen, not be with him, not be put up with, not have a place. They will reign with him forever and ever. It brings, that passage just brings Hebrews 1 to life for me, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. I love that word radiance anyway, but like it's really telling us at the end, we won't need the sun anymore because the radiance, how God and his son radiate their glory. We won't even need a light. We won't even need a sun because they're all we'll ever need. This church is the great reversal in our hope. This church is the, great prom- the greatest of all promises. This church is the good news of the gospel. This is what it's pointing to, the death, the resurrection, and the lordship. This is why all of that is so important and such good news. Not just that we've been saved from our sin. Praise God. Not just that we're new creations. Praise God for for that. But that one day, a river is going to flow once again in the place of God. And this time, that river won't be there so it can give life to a garden. But that river is going to flow from the throne of God itself. And that river is going to bring us life. It's going to bring us health. It's going to be a a metaphor for the eternal life that we have with Jesus Christ. This time, it will bring life to the people of God, and it will be a sign to us that the curse is over, and eternal life with God forever and ever is assured by the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And And in the city, there'll be a tree. And not like the tree that brought the curse of sin and death and suffering, but a tree that... And this tree, the tree of life, will bear the fruit that brings healing to the world. It's going to be a, tr- a fruit, because in heaven we're not going to really need healing. You see what this is? This is going to be a reminder of that we've been healed, that it's over. And what I love about this tree, the tree of life, that it's not going to just give us life. It's not going to just bear fruit. It's not just going to give us, not going to just give us healing. But this, this, this tree is going to bear fruit every month. And maybe that doesn't seem like a lot to you, but do you know trees only bear fruit once a year? 
But this is God's graciousness, you see that? Like this fruit's gonna bear every month because God is gonna give us more than we need. He's gonna give us more life, more goodness, more health than we ever needed. God overflows with his goodness to us and that's what this tree, that's what this kingdom, that's what all of this represents. God wants to overflow for you in his goodness and his pleasures forevermore in the city of God where we'll worship him by the river, by the tree, healing of the nations, all the world, gather together, every tongue, every nation, all people gather together to worship and joy and pleasure forevermore. That's your greatest promise, church. And it's the hardest one for us to hold on to. But that's who you are. That's what we hold on to. That's our hope. Listen, Philippians 2.11 tells us what all of this is really about. This is why this is so important. You know what all of this is about? Listen, perfect. It's not about you. Because if it's about you, it's about your failure or your successes. None of this is really about you. It is about the glory of God. And praise God for that. It's about the glory of God. The promise of the son all the way back in Genesis 3 that would bring us redemption, the whispers of that son all through the Old Testament, and even the fulfillment of those promises and the exaltation and the magnification of Jesus Christ, who has the name above all names in heaven and earth and under the earth, is all so that we might see the radiance of the glory of God, that radiance that will live in forever and ever. Amen in heaven. This is our true hope. Our true hope is, is not in what Christ has done, but what Christ is promising us he's going to do. Oh, and that's a good promise, church. Our hope is in the day when we will not have to worship by faith any longer, that we'll get to worship by sight in the presence of God when the curse will forever and ever be undone. So here's what we do, church. Until that day, we live for the glory of God and his son, Jesus Christ. We live for the glory of God in Jesus Christ. We make much of his name in our hearts, in our lives, in our minds, in our soul, in our church. We make Jesus above everything else. That's why we say this is a church. We, we, we preach the gospel every week. That's what that means. We preach Jesus every week because he is the name above every name. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And he is the one that will point us to the true hope, to the true promise that we have to rule and reign with him forevermore. And not in a garden this time, but a city. A city where we will be, we will be gathered together forever. And so until that day, church, we hold on to our hope. We hold on to our hope in whatever may come. Whatever this world may throw at us, we hold on to that hope for if Christ, if Christ could humble himself that far for us, then we can humble ourselves before a holy and righteous God who not only gave us everything, but is making us such unbelievable promises. Let's hold on to our hope. Let's hold on to the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.